Do y'all train them? Are y'all trained to do that? That's nice. That is big, Texas. I heard everything is bigger in Texas. And uh, there, I have to tell you, though, there is a little bit of Canada all over this country. And do you know where it is? It's inside your cars, inside the hotel lobbies. It's in every restaurant. It's in every hotel room. It's called air conditioning. And it's freezing. And when we walk in there, we're like, why do these people do this to themselves? It's so cold. It's like, yes, this is what I left. I came to Texas so that I could be so warm. And so we have spent our time, haven't we? I'm traveling with a good friend, Sandy, and my cousin, Beth. And um, uh, so we have spent our time trying to get outdoors in Texas. You are some of the nicest, kindest people. Do you, do you tell them to stand like that? It's a thing, isn't it? Because I don't want to get all big head thinking they just love me when they barely know me. How many women were here at the, uh, at the retreat? Oh, did we have fun? Now, there's some stuff we can't talk about here in the main sanctuary amongst all of you. But we had a good time. I am so blessed. I, um, we, we had the privilege of spending time with, of course, Becky, and she is delightful. You are so funny. And she says she doesn't really like the spotlight, you know, and yet every time she gets up, she steals it. And so, and then, of course, Pastor Dan uh, drove us back to our hotel last night, and um, he, he's a, a very quiet and staid man. And so we were, we were regaled with his stories. And I did find out a little bit about this church. And do you know that you are living in, in the very goodness of God in this place? The legacy, the DNA of, of godly, righteous people. Is, is that wonderful pastor you were talking about, is he here? To, is, could he wave his hand? They spoke so highly, that, oh, that is you. They spoke high, so highly of you, I'm like, I must meet that man. Wow. It's beautiful. I am so honored to be here. I'm so honored to be on any stage that God will give me because I've come with a message that I pray changes your life. You see, I've decided to take all the wreckage that the enemy tried to, to give to my life and turn into a wrecking ball against the enemy kingdom. So I come to do damage. Whenever I step, you know, onto a stage, I know there is one thing that I want. I want Jesus to be glorified. I, I am so blessed to be living a, a wonderful life. I do two television, national television shows in Canada. One is the 700 Club Canada. One is my own preaching show. I'm the only woman preacher in Canada. And I have a show called Laurelin and Friends. And uh, uh, I was blessed to be able to do a little bit of taping here yesterday for that. I get to speak all over the nation. I get to tell people my story. It's written uh, intricately in my book. My mom was uh, slightly horrified. Uh, she's 85 now, and so she's forgetting everything. 
Um, and it's wonderful. She keeps my book beside her on the couch. So she routinely begins to read it again and again. And in the first few chapters, she's mortified. She can't believe what I did. And then, and then she's, you know, why did you write all that stuff, Laura Lynn? You know, uh, we have a reputation. We don't want everybody to know all this stuff. My mom's a very private person. She's a very godly woman. My father, however, now... Um, Pastor Dan, I was assured that that there would be, it's, it's not here. But you know what? In Texas, sometimes they don't get everything right. Okay, no problem. All right. I have had to drink so much more water down here. Do you all know that you get, you probably don't even realize that you get dehydrated much faster? With all that heat and everything just resonating even from the cement. I just want, when I got off the plane, I just wanted to lie down on the cement. This is God's country. I mean, when God created the world, when he made Texas, he just smiled. He said, those people are going to be so blessed. And then in Canada, I don't know what he was thinking. You know, it took several days to make creation. And Canada was just, he wasn't feeling good because the platypuses hadn't turned out the way he thought. And so it's going to be cold up there, he said. All right, so where was I? I tend to get a little bit distracted. I have a very serious co-host in Canada. He is a man of God. He is, his name is Brian Warren. He played on the NFL. Then he came up to Canada. He's won two of those things you win um, playing football. Grey Cup? Is it Grey Cup here or there? See, this is what he doesn't appreciate about me. And I'm pretty sure, like, he is, he's a pastor and a very godly man. And uh, when we first got joined together, I know what he was thinking. I could see it in his eyes. He's like, why am I stuck with Dory from Finding Nemo? <laughs> and so we've had, to, we've had to work out the kinks, you know. And uh, God gave me a bit of a sense of humor, and I do appreciate that about him. But uh, my mom and dad uh, were wonderful, godly people, missionaries. I was raised in a missionary home. And I've been blessed that, uh, that God would take my very broken story. I'm going to tell you a little bit about it. My terrible, beautiful story. I'd like to start, though, with uh, just a, a quick scripture that I found in Luke 5. And this is where Jesus heals a man with leprosy. While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. Do you know that, that, that leprosy actually takes about 20 years to begin to manifest? That virus in your body, it, it takes a long time to show. So you see, you have that leprosy within you long before those terrible sores begin to show. And it's easy to gloss over a story like this and not think about the magnitude of the problem. You see, there was no cure for leprosy. There was nothing that would make a leper better in that day. And in fact, the moment that those sores began to show, can you imagine, husband, wife, what it would mean? You would never touch your wife or your husband again. You would never hug your children. And in fact, if that leprosy began to show, you not only could not be in your house anymore, you had to be an outcast on the peripherals of society. You see, my life gave me that feeling after I'd made a few mistakes. I began to feel like a person with leprosy. I called it my leprosy of soul. 
I wished it was better. I hoped that my life would be better. But after I had undergone and taken some choices into my, into my history, there was no way for me to get rid of the sores. There was a man and he was covered with leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. You see, that leper had heard something, that there was a man, something unusual was going on. There was a man that was going through the cities and the towns, and he was healing lepers. And he had already spent all the money that he could find to try to be well. He had been ostracized from his family. He'd faced loss. He'd been rejected. He'd lost everything, every dream he ever had as a young man. When he would run in the fields and think about what he might be one day. All of it was gone. Do any of you here have a few dreams that you once hoped might come true? But as life goes on, there's some sores that begin to appear, and you become an outcast. For some of us, it's more extreme than for others. And you're not allowed to be with that family anymore. Perhaps you experience rejection from those you hoped would love you most. That was the case of this man. And even as he would have made his way through the town, you would have seen some things happen. You see, when people have leprosy or leprosy of soul, people talk and they know. And so they kind of move away and they move their kids away from that kind of person who has that disease because we don't know where it comes from. And we don't want nothing to do with that. So just move aside. So as this man made his way, he had to face the disdainful looks of those around him, looking at him as if to say, you're just so unclean. You're so unacceptable in this area. What are you doing here? But for this man, there was something that he knew that this was his last hope. That if this man, Jesus, couldn't fix this, he'd never be well. And so he suddenly didn't care anymore. I might be rejected, I might be looked at badly, but if this doesn't work, I've got nothing. And so he dragged himself through all of those people and he got to Jesus and he asked this man and he begged him and he fell before him. How desperate do you have to be to just literally fall before someone? because that's all you have left. And he begged him, and he said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus reached out his hand, and in a most unbelievable cultural gesture, he touched him. You see, he wouldn't have had touch for a long time. Nobody touched a leper. Nobody wanted to be near a leper. And this man, Jesus, with onlookers thinking he's going to shoo him away, this man, Jesus, touched the leper, the unclean thing, the one who's rejected and nobody wants. And Jesus said three words that were astonishing. I am willing. 
I'm willing to make you clean. And in a moment, he said, be clean. And immediately, the leprosy left him. You see, I love that story because in this day and age, we don't face leprosy. But sometimes we have leprosy of soul. I've seen it in churches now that I've been sharing my story publicly for a few years. I've had those that come to the front and they said, I don't feel like I belong here. And I, I said, I understand. I know what it's like to be in a church just as beautiful as this. And to feel like I'm not one of the good people. I know my missionary parents are wonderful. I know I came from a good family. I know I know the word inside and out. But I don't feel like I belong amongst the congregation of the righteous. And this is what happened. I was born a small white child in Uganda, East Africa, to missionary parents who loved Jesus so much. And they would share all the goodness of God with me. And I grew up uh, in Uganda. And Idi Amin came into power when I was about seven years old. I don't know if any of you remember that story. I heard someone told me they would mar maybe uh, married to someone from Uganda here in Mukamayabazibwe, I say to you. But as we, as we were uh, in this uh, city... And in Uganda, in the country, and in, in Masaka, Idi Amin had taken over, and he was a brutal dictator. By the time his reign ended, he had killed 500,000 of his own people. As we were there, my father would go down to a river that was nearby, and the massacres were beginning, were beginning to happen, and he'd find the bodies floating down the rivers, and we really knew that we were facing a serious situation. I love the African people because you see when they pray, they're so desperate, they need God. We all love to pray. We, we pray for, you know, all kinds of good things. If you're a woman, you pray for the right color lipstick. Uh, at least I do. And uh, he's a faithful God. He has answered my prayer. It's number 235, L'Oreal, ladies. It's the best. He gives us what we need. Uh, now, uh, I just want to do, I do want to say something. It's a little bit womanly, but like in Canada, we wear nylon so that everything is held together well. And so I had come and my nylons had ripped in Canada. And I, we went to a Walmart. My friend asked, where's the nylons? It was just like a blank stare. And we realized as we went outside into the sweltering heat that that was probably one of the most ridiculous questions they've ever heard. So we won't be doing that again. So I remember as a young lady, my mom and dad were both preachers. And my dad preached one night and he asked the African people to come and nobody could pray like them. They were desperate. They needed food. They needed protection. They had a leader that was killing people. He was a, a Muslim dictator and some of the Christians were dying. It, it, it was just a brutal time. And I remember dad calling people forward and I went up and I kneeled on the cement stairs and I lifted my hands and I had tears streaming down my face and I said, God, I'm going to serve you forever. Help me to serve you forever. Help me to do what is right in your eyes. I never forgot the, the downpour of the Holy Spirit on my life. So a few years later, uh, we ended up leaving Uganda. We were deported. They came and took my dad late one night. And within about three months, we ended up in Taktoyaktak. So Taktoyaktak is way up in the Northwest Territories. It's on the Beaufort Sea. There are no trees and no monkeys and no alligators. I didn't know what to do with myself. And, uh, you know, the, the tallest tree, the bush is about this big. And I was now 
amongst the Inuit people. And so we spent about three years there, and, you know, this might surprise you. Not everybody likes me. Um, I was bullied. And so I was this little blonde kid in the, the Inuit school, and, uh, and I was always trying to find my way. Like, who was I? I, was, I had grown up amongst the African people, and then I was amongst these, the, the Eskimos, as, as they called them at the time. And, uh, and I was trying to find my way through life. And then we moved to Vancouver, Vancouver, British Columbia. And that's where I currently reside, and we tape the show over on the other side of the country in Toronto every month. But I was in Vancouver, and so now I was with all the people that looked just like me. And I was still trying to figure out where I belonged and how it would all work. So as time went on, I began, you know, feeling my oats and turning into the, you know, crazy teenage years, and I was a bit of a handful. I uh, had lots of fun. Um, my mother was a very staid and proper woman, and so managing me became a real, you know, a real process. I'll jump ahead that, you know, at about 19, I met a fella, and uh, he was a very nice guy, and I, I had maintained my purity. I had told the Lord that I was going to live for him, and I did indeed want to, but there was something just a little self-willed about me, just a, a little bit of a virus inside my heart. And so I met this fellow and I let him know that he was probably the right one for me and he would be marrying me. And I gave him the date and I, I helped him out with the tuxedo and I let him know how many people would be coming and, and that I was the right girl for him. And so as we uh, got to the wedding day, my mom and dad had, you know, shared some concerns. Well, do you think you're really ready? Because, you know, as you can see for a 51-year-old, I'm, I'm quite immature. And so for a 21-year-old, I was a disaster. And they, you know, they knew that they couldn't really stop this forceful, you know, whirlwind of a girl. Uh, but they were going to pray me through and help me out. And I remember as we gathered on the wedding day... We had 200 of my favorite people gathered, and my father and I were at the back, and five bridesmaids, and they had already begun the procession. And I put my hand through my daddy's arm, and I, I said, okay, well, this is it. And we took a deep breath together, you know, and he wasn't quite ready for this moment, and I didn't know I wasn't ready for the moment. And so we walked through those doors, and as we began heading down, the crowd stood, and I thought, wow, this is the day that I've been preparing for. And then a little thought came, and it's going to be over in four hours. That'll be it. And as I looked towards the front and up at that man that was standing on the pulpit area, I realized all I thought in my heart was, who is that? Who is that? And you see, for a young girl, in her naivety, with her vulnerable heart and her silly ways and her immaturity, that was unbelievable. Now, if they had made the movie Runaway Bride, I wouldn't even have a testimony. I'd just do what Julie Roberts, Julia Roberts did and hightail it right out of that building and go and find a, another fella to tell that he'd be marrying me. And so I got up and, you know, we, we took a VHS at that day and VHS doesn't lie. 
And uh, do you all remember that? The older ones do. Yeah, the young people are like, what's VHS? Okay. Took a VHS of that day, and there was a very sad and sullen and sorry-looking bride. Because something in my heart began to say, I don't know that I've done all the right things. I've preserved my purity. I haven't smoked or drunk or run with those who do or done the weed that we're so famous for in British Columbia. Hadn't done any of that stuff. But in the error of my ways, I'd made a decision and a choice that was going to be very costly. And as we went on the honeymoon and we got through the first year and things were not as I had hoped and dreamed that a marriage would be like, all the details are in the book. I'll spare them for you today, but it just wasn't going well. We had great pastors, just like your pastor Dan and Becky, and we went and we, we spoke with them and we said, this, this is not going well. Could you please help me? And I did a lot of prayers like, God, maybe I kind of did rush something. Maybe I did do something, but would you just fix it? Would you fix it? And you see the virus of my soul was just increasing. You couldn't really yet see it too much on the outside. But the virus within my, my heart, that self-willed girl, that little bit of rebellion that had caused me to go my own way and had, had caused me not to listen to godly counsel was beginning to fester and I, I didn't know how to fix it. And, I, you know, we went to the pastors and, you know, uh, he kind of like tried to ask a few questions and we had a few sessions, but finally he was like, this is bigger than me, you need professional help. And so we went for professional help. We spent a lot of money, we saw a few counselors, but one thing was very clear it was not going to get better on its own. And I didn't know how to fix it. Year three, year four, year five. At about this time, the enemy is very crafty. The word says that there are familiar spirits, familiar with your life, familiar with your downfalls, your mistakes, the errors of your heart. And with every single one of us, when the enemy sees the thumbprint of God on your heart, he puts a bullseye on your forehead. Because you see, if he can tell you that you're disqualified, that you're done in, if he can cause you to kind of mess up, if he can convince you that the destiny and the calling of God that he had intended since you were formed in your mother's womb can never come about because of your actions, because that leprosy in your soul is going to prevent all that he intended, then that's what he's going to do. He's going to convince you of that so that you're nullified, so that you never accomplish all God has. And you see some of the seeds that are in my life today, some of the outpouring and the harvest, I knew some of that was in there. I, I didn't know, you know, people say, how'd you get into television? It was in 1999 watching, watching some TV, a Christian program, that God called me miraculously. My life was in a disastrous place. But he called me miraculously at that moment with, with the, all the decisions that I'd already made, with all of the pain that I'd already caused. Because the gift and the calling of God is without repentance. But if the enemy can convince you that you are so powerful, that your sin is so big that it stops everything that God can do. If he can convince you of that, he nullifies your existence in some way. And so I was at this point where 
I took on actions and did things that ended my first marriage. And it had been a disaster. It had not been easy. But the, uh, what I did was I exacerbated the problem by doing some things. And when I went to my husband and I said, you know, can we put this back together? He said, no, there is no way to put this back together again. And I knew he was right. And I knew I didn't deserve it. And I walked into another relationship that I thought was more exciting. It didn't have the same boredom of the same, you know, of, of the first marriage that I'd had. Oh, it was exciting. We had police incidences, safety issues, violence. And as one disastrous choice and decision began to compound each other, I saw my mother cry in a way I had never seen my beautiful mom cry. I saw my family ripped apart. I saw my dad sad, my father who had stood with me, who had said, okay, well, we're going we're gonna to walk with you. Whatever you decide, we're going to be with you, Laura Lynn. I saw my father broken inside, ruined I lost my reputation. I lost my church. I lost everything that I thought was important. I, I lost my self-dignity, my self-respect. And as the error of my sin and the shame began to, to literally weigh over me like a black cloud, like a backpack of shame that I could not get rid of, the years after that turned into the most dismal and broken years of my life. I was such a mess. I would cry all the way to work, and I would cry all the way to home. And I'd say, God, what have I done to my life? I had a dream. I, this should have been better. When I was a little girl, I thought I'd do something great for you. And now all I've done is make a mess. And this festering sore, this leprosy of, of soul began to just fester out of and ooze out of my body as I felt so disregarded by society, so rejected by those of faith. Because what I'd done was so public and been so ruinous to the family that I knew I would never survive this. I would never survive this. I got post-traumatic stress disorder because I would uh, be in my, you know, asleep at night and I'd wake up with a jolt and suddenly it would all flood back to me what I'd done. You see, some people can blame their past. They can blame a really bad family. Maybe there was alcohol or drugs in their family or an abusive parent and somebody who mistreated you. And so you've got all this stuff and all this baggage. But for this girl, there was none of that to blame. I only had to look at my own wicked and deceptive heart. And I surely knew that if God had intended something great to become part of my life, I had wrecked it. I'd ripped it to shreds. There was no way that I'd ever be able to do anything great. There was no possibility. I messed it up. And all I knew every day was that the enemy was accusing me constantly, you're done in. You're nobody. You can never do anything great for God ever. Look what you've done. Look at the sores on you. Look at the virus that has now completely unleashed itself over your life. You're done. There's no way to recover. I, rem I remember one Wednesday night I had tried to be as good as I could. My situation, quite difficult, trying to navigate this second husband I had now married. It wasn't good. I didn't know how to make it better. 
this one Wednesday night, I usually would go to church and I, I didn't want to go. I mean, I don't feel welcome there. I don't feel like I belong. People were nice to me. But the leprosy, it separated me from everybody. It was the secrets that I had. Some people knew and some people didn't. But this sin, I was never going to get out of this. I was never going to be able to make this better. I walked over to the closet and I got one boot on at a time. We don't just wear shoes in Canada. We wear boots. And I got one boot on at a time. And I thought, I'm just going to get there. I'm just going to get to church. And as I walked into that service, the pastor had brought in a life-size cross. It was one of the most beautiful crosses I'd ever seen. There was a light coming down on it. And I looked up at that cross. I said, wow, that's nice. That's so rugged. So real looking. We sang a few songs, not nearly as beautiful as you had here today. But we sang a few songs. I clapped my hands and I tried to be part of the throng of the righteous. I wanted to fit in, but this was not going well. And so as we sat down, the pastor asked if the ushers would come and start handing out little pieces of paper. And he, he asked us all to do something that, that was horrifying to me. He asked us all if we would write down our three most prominent sins, those sins that constantly come to our minds. I wonder if any of you have something like that, like something that's happened that nobody knows about, but it's in your mind day and night. Like David said, my sin is ever before me. I don't want anybody to find out about this stuff. There's a systemic problem in the church. It's leprosy of the soul of the church where we don't understand that our secret places are festering within us. And they don't need to. So the pastor wanted me to write down, you know, my, my three most prominent sins. I, I, I was, no, I, I don't want to do this. I kind of refused in my heart. I'm not going to participate. And, and I looked around. My mom was there that night. She was down a few people on the same row. And my, my mother, I mean, there's God. There's Billy Graham. And then there's Pastor Dan. And then there's my mom. And she is feverishly writing down her sins. I'm thinking, what has this woman done? Did she jaywalk at some point? Did she chew gum in church? What, what had she done? You see, as I sat there and I was about to write my sins, my sins had been the destruction of my life. My sins had stole my destiny. My sins were the kind of sins that you'd be drugged to the town court for in Jesus' day. My sins went against the Ten Commandments. I couldn't survive my sins. And I sure did not want them written down on a piece of paper. And I, I had another fear. The pastor asked everybody to start getting in a lineup because we were now going to head towards the cross and pound them in that cross. And I was kind of worried. I mean, is he going to go and read the papers the next day and maybe start lining up the sins with the people to put on the prayer chain, of course, right? But... I was worried that, he, you know, he would know. And so I decided, oh, I don't want to participate. But if I don't get up in that lineup, I'm going to have to write the fourth sin of rebellion and not paying attention to authority on, on my paper. And I'd be the only one sitting in the pews. And that wasn't acceptable. So as illegibly as I could, on that little piece of paper, no one was going to ever be able to read my sins. I wrote down 
painstakingly what those were. I knew something in my heart that God truly knew what I'd done. He sees everything. And he decided to forget about it, the word says. And I knew that I knew about it because I was living it every day and being reminded of that secret sin. And I couldn't recover. And I knew that there was an enemy in my soul who day and night accused me of what that sin was and would not release me in any way from the memory of it. I folded that piece of paper in four, and I knew exactly where that nail would go so no one would ever be able to read my illegible writing. And I got into the lineup, and I was pretty much the last person by this time. And as I got there, they began to sing a song I'm sure you've heard, Oh, the blood of Jesus that washes white as snow. And tears began coming down my face because I knew something that this girl wasn't white. I should have been white. It should have been better. But this girl, she's not white. She's broken. She's a mess. She's definitely black with sin. I can't get past what I've done. I remembered how my mom, when I was a little girl, she had a, a three-page booklet that she would share with all the Sunday school kids. And she'd say, you see, kids, this is the black page. And then this is the red page where Jesus' blood makes us white as snow. I loved that story. I remember a little, as a little girl seeing it. I knew the word. It said that as far away as the east is from the west, that's how far he's removed my sin from me. But you see, this leprosy of my soul and the sores, they had not gone away. I was not white in my eyes. I was black with sin. And then they began to sing on a hill far away stood an old rugged cross. And I looked up at that cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And in my heart, now my shoulders began heaving with pain because you see, I was the shame. I was the emblem of suffering and shame. I had brought disdain on my family. I had ruined my life. I could never do anything God had called me to because of my shame. So I'll cling to the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. I don't know if any of you here have been through this where your destiny's been so cut off by something that happened that there's no trophies. There is no trophies. There's no trophies to lay down. And I looked up there and I could almost see Jesus with those spikes through his hands and his feet and blood dripping down his body and beaten so badly that, that he was unrecognizable with a crown in mockery of him put on his head. And I could see this bloodied mess. And I wonder, you know, it's so easy to think about that in the church, isn't it? Like we know the scriptures and we know what Jesus did. But would any of you, for even three of your most favorite people, if you knew that by doing the act of crucifixion, you would guarantee their place in heaven, how many of you would say, that's no problem, no problem at all, I'll just do it? I'll just take the crucifixion. I'll take those spikes through my hands and my feet. How many of you would find that so easy? It was a horrendous price to pay. And I looked up at that and I thought, Jesus, all of that and I 
as the song said, I'll exchange all of this one day for a crown. There's nothing to exchange. The brokenness in my heart was overwhelming. I, I suddenly had three years of pain and, and disgust at myself and rejection. The depravity of my soul having stolen everything. I couldn't contain it anymore. I was sobbing. I didn't want anybody to see me cry. I sure didn't want my mom to have to see me cry again. I headed towards that cross simply, walking towards it. And the Holy Spirit in that moment, the Holy Spirit whispered something that changed my life. It's the reason I can stand here today. It's the reason that I'm able to share this story with you and that I am able to do what I do called by God into my destiny, into what he had ordained for me from before time began because the Holy Spirit whispered this. He said, Laura Lynn was what Jesus did on that cross. All that price. All the blood, all the beating, all the, the humiliation, was it just not enough for you? Oh. Must he die again so you would receive the price that he's already paid for your freedom? In that moment, I... I was like the leprous man. I said, do you mean Jesus? Will you make even me clean? Even me? Worse sinner than most people? Doesn't deserve you more than most people? I have not lived a good life. I've done things that I don't want people to know. I've got secrets. Will you make even me clean? And just like Jesus reached out to that leprous man, I felt in my heart, he said, Oh, I am willing. Be clean. Be clean. Be clean. In Jesus' name. Something that I had never grasped in all of my 30-some years of being a missionary daughter. And knowing the word, something took, took hold of my soul. It gripped me. I was undone, and I fear to say that that's something that still goes on in the church. You see, we, we come to church, and some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You don't feel like you belong here because the enemies told you that that, that abortion or, or that adultery, addiction, that thing that you stole, that, that person that you hurt, that it's disqualified you. And I saw that what I had done my whole life is I had put my sin up here. My sin reigned. My sin was over everything. It ruled me. It ruled my destiny. The sores of the leprosy of my soul were just all over it. And it was public and it was out there. And I'd taken the cross of Jesus Christ. And I'd let it be down here. Powerless. Not effective. And in that moment when I looked at that cross, I decided by faith I would receive for the very first time in my life 
what Jesus had died to give me. And I, I took that cross, I took everything that he did, and I put my sin down here where it belonged, never to be seen again in the sea of forgetfulness where he says it belongs. And I took what Jesus did, and I placed it in the royal, amazing position that it was supposed to be. And I remembered the words that he said on the cross. When Jesus said, it is finished, he didn't mean he was so glad that the crucifixion was finally over. He didn't mean that I'm glad this weekend's over and my time on earth, it's been, you know, horrible to deal with all these people. He didn't mean that's finished. He meant all the sin of mankind, whomever would receive by faith, will be so set free that their destiny will be sealed, that nothing will stop them, that they will be free forever and ever and ever. Amen. And I received it for the first time as, as a Christian. And I wonder if some of you need that today. You may have known it in your head, but you haven't known it in my heart. I got up to that cross and the pastor leader said he had to turn around to see who was smacking that nail into that cross so hard. And it wasn't just because I was a bad shot. I was just really, really, I was determined this was the last day. If Jesus said it's finished, he meant Laurel in sin is finished. And this is the last day that I would take it on, that I would receive the accusation of the enemy. Enemy. That was the last day. That was the last day. And I pounded that nail into that cross. And I have never been the same. I've never been the same. I have taken the wreckage. I've turned into a wrecking ball. And I told God, anytime you will ever put me anywhere, I'm going to tell the people of God, oh my goodness, do you know that we're free? Do you know that we're free? All that shame that you've ever felt, it, it, it's completely ridiculous. Jesus paid a price that covers everything, all our sin, all our sin. I got up the next day, and I was, I was a new person. I started writing down scriptures of my identity everywhere I went. I put it on the dashboard. I carried it in my wallet. I would write it down, put it up on my mirror where I like to spend a lot of time looking at it. And I, just, and I remember that Jesus, Jesus paid a price that was going to set me completely free forever. And I told God I'm going to become a nightmare to the kingdom of darkness. I'm going to take him down everywhere I go. And I said, Jesus, is it true? What happened to me last night? Is it true? So, so like I'm even Stephen with Pastor Dan. He's only been married one time. That I know of, right? <laughs> and I said, Jesus, am I, because of what you did, am I even Stephen like with the Pope? And the Holy Spirit said, yes, you are. Okay, okay. Am I even Stephen with Billy Graham? Yes, yes you are. I've made you white as snow. And I said, okay, all right. Am I even Stephen with Mother Teresa? And he said, now you've gone too far. But 
He said, you're white, you're whole, you're clean, you're powerful. I've called you to great things. You're more than a conqueror. If you will just believe what I have given you, I'll, I'll make it outstanding. I'll change you forever. In Jesus' name, I decided that the blood of Jesus, it's real. It's all that would heal me. My leprosy of soul is gone. I have no sores. You can read my book. It kind of talks about the sores I once had. But I have no sores anymore because I'm white. I'm whole. I'm clean. I'm destined for destruction against the enemy. And so are you. When the word of God tells you that you're white... It means that all of that stuff that the enemy accuses you day and night of is garbage. Let it go. Don't let it stop you from your destiny. Not for one more day. Not for one more day. Not for one more day. God loves you. He's got a plan for you. When Jesus told that leprous man that he could be clean and that he was willing, he meant he was willing, and he's willing to do it for you. God bless you. Thank you for having me today. Amen.